Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, and welcome to this week's Shir. Now, this week is a bit of a um, pioneering venture because we are simulcasting. We have a live audience here participating in the Shir. Thank you, Sarah, and the uh, family for your hospitality. And we also are here on Zoom and we will be on the podcast as well. Uh, we are maintaining social distancing here, and in this Hashem, we will all be safe. And if it all goes to plan, next week, we will be in the Bet Midrash in Mizrahi Synagogue, Melbourne, Australia. So, but watch out for the news of that. Okay, we are in Peretet Zion of, uh, of Bereshit. Um, we are the story of Sarah and Hagar, and the birth of Yishmael. And the story so far is that Sarah told Abraham to take Hagar as, uh, as a wife or as a concubine, um, and she became pregnant straight away. And then there was a dispute between her and Sarah, and Hagar ran away. And a malach found her and said to her, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied in Pasukhet, I'm uh, fleeing from Sarai, my mistress. And so I noticed last week that she doesn't say where she is going. She just says where she has come from. Okay, welcome. More people joining the share. We're also on Zoom at the same time. Hello, hello. It's nice to see you all live. Okay, we are on Peretet Zion, Pasuk Tet. And um, the <clears throat> I just want to recap to Pasuk Zion. Pasuk Zion started Malach Hashem. A Malach of Hashem found her. That's Hagar. And in Pasuk Chet Vayomar, he said, "That's the Malach talking." And in Pasuk Tet Vayomela Malach Hashem, the Malach of Hashem said to her, "Shuvi el Return to your mistress, i.e. to Sarai, and literally be afflicted under her hand. Because the problem was that she regarded Sarah as afflicting her. We explained last week, um, Rashi said, that Sarah was making her work hard. And, and I explained what I thought Rashi meant by that. And I want to say it again because it's important that Sarai was not afflicting her, was not being cruel to her, but was establishing her authority as the mistress-maidservant relationship. Uh, and that was what Hagar <coughs> didn't like. But Mamalach says to her, return to your mistress, the hitani, and be afflicted. In other words, uh, accept your position as a maidservant, tachat yadeha, under her hand. Now, what Rashi has to say is sort of incidental to the main message. What Rashi says on Pasuk Tet is, uh, on the words, For every saying, there was sent to her another Malach. And therefore it says, with each saying of the Malach, it says, the Malach of Hashem, or rather, a Malach of Hashem said to her. So we had a Malach mentioned in Zion. We have a Malach mentioned in Tet. 
Um, and we have more Malachim mentioned in Yud and Yud Aleph. And later on, we'll see that Rashi references back to this number of Malachim. And the reason it says Malach every time, and Rabbi doesn't just say, he said, she said, he said, she said, is Rashi is explaining because it's a separate Malach. So the question Rashi's answering is why does it keep saying Malach? And the answer is there's a Malach sent for every different statement. Now Rashi doesn't say why there's a Malach sent for every different statement. We're probably familiar with Rashi's comment at the beginning of the next Parsha of Vayera, <coughs> where three Malachim are sent to Abraham and then two of those go to uh, Sodom. And Rashi makes the point more than once actually that each Malach can only do one job. So one was sent to heal Abraham from his Brit Milah, one was sent to announce the birth of Yitzchak, one was sent to um, overthrow Saddam, and the one who healed Abraham was also going to there to save Lot. Uh, and Rashi makes a point quite deliberately that one Malach can only do one job. Now he doesn't say here why there's a succession of Malachim. Um, it might be referenced, it might, might be a little bit relevant to what Rashi has to say in possibly with Gimel, which we'll get to in a little while. But it could be that Rashi is saying that each separate statement was like a separate job, because each separate statement was achieving a different thing. Rashi doesn't say that, but I'm wondering, given his um, efforts in saying one malach per job, maybe that's what he means here as well. That's Pasuk Tet. Let's carry on with the message in Pasuk Yud. malach Hashem and the Malach said to her, um, I will multiply a lot, that's the double Russian, your descendants, and you will not be able to count them from their multitude. So the next thing he's going to say in Pasuk Yod Aleph is, you're going to have a baby. Um, so leading up to that, she's, he's saying that you're going to be the ancestor of a great populous nation. There is nothing that Rashi has to say on Pasuk Yod. That's why he doesn't say anything. So we will go on to Pasuk Yud Aleph. Malach. So this is the fourth Malach. Vayomela Malach Hashem. Hinach Hara. I'll leave that untranslated for a moment. Vayaladet Ben. And you will bear a son. Vakarata Shemo Yishmael. And you will call his name Yishmael. Ki Shema Hashem El on Yech. Because Hashem has listened to your affliction. Interestingly, I just noticed, Rashi doesn't comment on this, having said in Pasuk Tet, go back and be afflicted, in Pasuk Yod Aleph, we hear that Hashem has heard of her affliction. So on the one hand, her affliction leaves her uh, in a distressed state, which Hashem is uh, responsive and sensitive to, but on the other hand, it's the same affliction which is appropriate, and that's why the Malach tells her to go back to that same affliction. Interesting. Um, a uh, little bit of a dichotomy there. We'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. Okay, now, what does Hinacha uh, Hara mean? Says Rashi, Tashuvi Tahari. When you return, you will conceive. Kamo, like Hinach Hara to Eshet Manoach. So the proof text is the same words, Hinach Hara, exactly the same words which come from the story of Eshet Manoach. Who was Eshet Manoach? The mother of Shimshon, which was the subject of the Haftorah just two weeks ago. And there, uh, the wife of Manoach, who's not named, but uh, hasn't got pregnant, and the Malach appears to her and says, Hinacha Hara, which clearly from that context means, 
you will become pregnant. Now, what else could it have meant here? It's actually in the present tense. Inach hara, behold you conceive or conceived. Uh, actually, it is past. Hara is conceived. So you could read it as other Mephoshim do, as behold, you are pregnant. Now, you'll remember that she did get pregnant uh, in Pasuk Dalit. As soon as Abram had relations with her, she got pregnant, the Tahar. Um, so other Mephoshim say, well, she got pregnant. And now the Malach is saying, behold, you are pregnant. Rashi has said that the first pregnancy didn't uh, go to term. Uh, there was a miscarriage. He's talked about how why that was um, in Not sure where. Okay, we'll go in one of the early Pesukim of this parent. And um, <clears throat> I think really what was driving Rashi to say that the first pregnancy was miscarried was well, he, he, he um, ah, it was relevant in Pasuk K. It was part of his explanation of Veinecha with an extra Yud. So you can go back and listen to the podcast to, to hear about that from last week's Pasha, last week's year. Um, but it's also relevant to Rashi's understanding of Hinachara. Because, as I say, it can be present tense. Behold, you are pregnant. Or, as we see from the Book of Shoftim, it can be future tense. And Rashi says it's future tense. And I would suggest there's a very simple reason why he says it's future tense. Because if it's present tense, the Malach doesn't need to announce it. She already knew she was pregnant. That was what was going on in Pasuk Dalad and Pasuk Hay. It's not as if the Malach standing there with the pregnancy test saying, look, here's the blue line. Because she already knows that. And therefore, there's no point in the Malach saying, behold, you are pregnant. There's much more point in the Malach saying, behold, you are going to be pregnant. That's the sort of thing a Malach says. A bit of prophecy, a bit of future divination, which otherwise we wouldn't know. And if the Malach is saying she's going to be pregnant, and the words hinach, hara, mean the same as they do in Shoftim, i.e. you're going to be pregnant, then Rashi has to explain what happened to the first pregnancy, which he did in Pasukkah. Okay. Um, then Rashi has a grammatical point on the word of v'yoladt, which not only is hard to read um, because of the repeated shava under the dalad, under the taf, it's also an obscure formation of the verb. And to make it worse, the lamad with a patach um, has a more of a, a uh, past usual meaning, but the taf with a shava has more of a present type meaning. Uh, I'm not quite sure if I've got that right because I'm not, uh, my, my diktuk is not nearly as uh, precise as it should be. But Rashi says, Rashi has to tell us that this word is in a similar construction, similar grammatical form to another word. So on the words, Rashi says, It's the same grammatical meaning as which is present tense, and you are going to give birth. So I know that makes it future, um, but it's actually the present tense. So you are, you're going to be pregnant, and you're going to give birth. Uh, now, how can we just say Vayoladta is, uh, is the same as Vayoledet? So Rashi brings a proof text from a Pasuk in Yemiyahu, which actually has two instances in the same Pasuk of this grammatical form. And it says, Yashaft Balavanan, Mekunant Ba'arazim. You dwell in Lebanon, 
and you make your nest amongst the cedars. And if you look there in Yemiahu, you will see the context is obvious that it must be present tense. So Rashi is saying that Yolad uh, is the same as Vayoledet, which you're more familiar with, which is the present tense. And then on the words, Vakarat Shemo Yishmael, Rashi says, Vakarat Shemo Sivui Hu. It is a command. Now, what else could it be if it wasn't a command? Prediction. Exactly. It could just be a regular future. But Rashi says it's an imperative. Kamo Sha'omer Lazachar, the Karata et Shemo Yitzchak. So the, the Karat is the precisely the feminine equivalent of the Karata et Shemo Yitzchak from Perak Yud Zion Pasuk Yutet. And that is, if you look there, where Hashem tells Abraham he's going to have a son and you will call his name Yitzchak, that clearly is an imperative. So Rashi wants us to know that the Malach is telling her that she is must, she's obliged to call his name Yishmael, which is almost what happened, as we will see, but it's not just a prediction. And again, it's, uh, I think there's, there's two Rashis in a row, three actually, in a row, which are pretty um, grammatical. So that concludes what he has to say on Pasigud Aleph. So the Malach continues with, her, with his prediction and saying, having said, you're going to have a son and you're going to call his name Yishmael, and he will be, Pera is a wild um, ass or a wild donkey. So he'll be a man like a wild donkey, Rashi will explain. Yado Vakol, his hand in everything, the Yad Kol Bo, and the hand of everything in him, the Alpene Kalechav Yishkon. And uh, in front of or by the face of all his brothers, he will dwell. So we have quite a few obscure phrases there. So Rashi needs to alleviate the obscurity and explain them phrase by phrase. So the first one, Pera Adam. Ohev midbarot latsud chayot. He loves deserts to trap wild animals. Kamo kishakatov, as is written about Yishmael, later on in the story, he dwelt in the desert and he became an archer. By the way, anyone in their text got the, the other way around? Has anyone got Rove Keshet before Yeshe Bamidbar? Yeah. You have. It's interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure that's a mistake, but it is in some editions. And the reason I'm pretty sure that's a mistake is that's not what the Pasuk says. <laughs> the Pasuk that he's quoting says, Vayeshe Bamidbar, Vayhi Rove Keshet. Manos doesn't have a citation of the pasuk with like the other ones it is like with Yemiah who's got brackets forward. And oh, that's interesting. This one doesn't have anything. Okay, but it clearly is a pasuk because it says Kamosha Katuv. Okay, so I did see I did see a long analysis of why Rashi reversed the order, but it seems to me in most texts Rashi doesn't reverse the order, which makes much more sense. He's quoting the pasuk. Okay, so Pera is a wild donkey or a wild ass. So Pera Adam is a man who's a wild ass, but I think it's not so much ass-like, but rather the location of the wild ass. Where does the wild ass live? In the desert. So that's why Rashi says, Ohev Midbarot. He's a desert lover. And what does he, why does he love the desert? Or, or what does he do in the desert? He traps animals. As we see, but he did, because that's what the pastor later on tells us, that's exactly what happened. So Rashi matches up 
the prediction here with the reality later. What is Yado Bakol? His hand in everything. List him, one word. He will be a robber or a bandit. He will steal. That's what will happen out in the desert where he, either Yishmael literally or his descendants, not 100% clear, but it can be Yishmael, um, although it's going to change in the next one perhaps, um, will be a robber. That's the sort of thing you do in the desert. The Yad Kolbo. I'm sorry? From passersby. Okay, you rob them. It's not just steal. It's the listing is a is a robber, is a bandit, the sort of people who you know, get who set upon vulnerable people, and that probably is what happened in the desert. The Yad Kolbo, the hand of all will be in him. So there's a nice, beautiful sort of parallelism in the Hebrew. Rashi doesn't really see it as so it doesn't explain it in a symmetrical way. Yad Bakol, Yad Kolbo, Hakol Sonin Oto, Umit Garin Bo. Everyone hates him and fights against him. Now, I have to say, I actually, I really believe that the word soner is, when you translate it as hate, I don't think that's quite the right nuance. Uh, it means you don't like. I think hate is too strong a word. And the one I'm particularly thinking of is that the Pasuk says that Leah was hated. Uh, she wasn't. She was liked less than Rachel. She wasn't hated. Uh, so uh, I would suggest similarly here, uh, this is the word of Rashi, it's not the word of the Chumash, but I think sonin is, is a bit strong to translate as hate. Uh, sorry, hate is a bit too strong to translate sonin, but people don't like him. So people don't like him and fight against him. And it's obvious they fight against him because he's robbing them. And then the last phrase, kol echav yishkan, on the face of all his brothers he will dwell, zaro gadol, that his descendants will be great, i.e. many. So by the way, this this part certainly refers to the descendants of Ishmael explicitly. It's the descendants of Ishmael, not Ishmael himself. So Yad uh, Yadobakol also might be the descendants of Ishmael, not necessarily Ishmael himself, who's the robber. Um, so what's the connection between the Alpene Kolechav Yishkan and Rashi saying Shihiyeh Zaro Gadol? The answer is um, if his um, seed is great, wherever they are, they will be dwelling close to his brothers. So there'll be so many of them, they'll be living all over the place. They'll be near other people of the same clan. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is, I don't know, I've been told, but B'nai Yishmael is like, I guess, do we, do we accept that they are um, Muslim, by the way? I don't know if that's a question. Well, uh, we accept that they are Arabs, which is not identical with Muslims, by the way. I mean, most Arabs are Muslims, but many Muslims are not Arabs. Okay. okay. So not Muslims. Not well, <laughs> Arabs, not exclusively, not, exclusive, okay. not Muslims per se, okay. Arabs per se. Okay. okay. Um, I'm not sure how, if that's strictly true anthropologically, but we identify Yishmael with Arabs. Pasuk Yud Gimel. Well, do you say that is coming across as a negative? negative? Yes. Or why is that so negative? That you're going to be large in numbers? Oh, that last bit's not negative. The robbing bit's negative. No, the robbing bit's negative. I'm saying the last part. But no, I don't think that's negative. Imagine that all the stuff seems to be negative, and then the, all of a sudden one thing's positive. I don't understand what's the, the case between the two. This is seemingly, you would assume all these things are negative, and now we say, oh, there's actually a positive aspect. Well, um, it's certainly not negative. Whether it's positive, I suppose Zara Gadol is, is pretty nice. Isn't just stating a fact. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah your, your question is premised on the fact there shouldn't be negative, negative, neutral. Yeah, yeah. And maybe there should, as, as we see from this possible. Yeah. The way, at least the way Rashi explains it. Certainly the first two are negative and the third one is not. So 
sorry to give a sort of Balabatish uh, answer to your question. Maybe not. That's my answer. Pasuk Yud Gimel. The Tikra Shem Hashem Hadover Eleha Ata Kel Ra'i Ki Amra Hagam Halom Ra'iti Acharei Ra'i. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of work to do on this pasuk. She called the name of God who spoke to her, Ata Kel Ra'i. So let's look at Rashi on Ata Kel Ra'i. You are the God Ra'i. Now, we have to understand what Ra'i means. And at the end of the pasuk, there is Ra'i, which is similar, but not the same. So in order to understand what she said, and we have to understand precisely the meaning of the word ra'i. So Rashi says, Ata kel ra'i, nakud chataf kamatz. It's a chataf kamatz under the resh. Mipnei shehu shem davar. Because it is a noun. And it means eloka hara'iya, the god of the seeing. Or perhaps to make it clearer, the god of the vision. Seeing is a noun, it's a gerund. But um, to make it clearer, let's call it the vision. Ata kel ra'i, you are the god of the vision. And ra'i at the end of the word of the um, is Rashi is not going to say it directly, so we'll mention now. Uh, ra'i is my seeing. With a cholam on the resh, it's a verb meaning my seeing. Or okay. Um, back to back to Rashi. So having said, so what is the vision? So you are the God of the vision. You are the God of the seeing. What is the seeing? You see the insult of the insulted. You see me. Here am I. Uh, I'm a nothing. I'm a maidservant running away from her mistress. And nevertheless, you, Hashem, sent a malach because you saw me. You saw my suffering. And then we have in brackets, which means it's not in every edition, You are the God of seeing. That implies you see everything. But nothing sees it. You are the God who sees, but you are the God who is not seen. Do you have that in your text? Yeah. Okay. So now you're going to ask me, why do we need a Dvar Acher? And I'm not sure. Um, no, I'll pass on that. If you're going to ask that, it's a good question. But I'm not sure. Uh, it depends on what Ra'i means. What is the seeing of the seeing? What is being seen? Is it you're seeing me or you're seeing everything, including me? So it amounts to a similar thing. But I'm not quite sure why Rashi needs two explanations there. But if you don't mind, let's go on. Hagam Holam Hara'iti. So what does all this mean? Rashi says, Hagam halam, Loshan Tema. So first of all, it's a question. So the hey at the beginning with the Khataf Kamatz underneath it is makes it interrogative. So it's Gam Halam, but as a question. Is it true, Gam Halam Ra'iti? So that's the first thing to say. The Khisavura Hayiti, could I have thought Sha'af Halam, even there, where's there? The Midbarot, in the deserts. So, Halom is normally there, but here it means there as in here. There as in this place. Would I have expected that even, I'm going to translate it as here, 
in the deserts, ra'iti shaluchav shel makom, I would see an emissary of Hashem. And then the words, acharei ro'i, are there, it's quoted from the Pasuk, acharei ro'i, otam v'beito shel Avraham. So after ro'i, I saw otam then in the house of Abraham. So first thing, ro'i at the end of the Pasuk means I saw. And her second thing, hagam halam ro'iti, would I have expected to see them here, after I saw them, i.e. there in the house of Abraham. Because there in Abraham's house, I was accustomed to see Malachim. And then Rashi, we'll go back, but then there's a bit more of the puzzle to put together. How do we know that, how does it make sense that she was accustomed to seeing Malachim in Abraham's house? Now, by the way, we haven't told and learned in the Chumash that Abraham entertained Malachim regularly. We know there's going to be an incident where he entertains three Malachim. He doesn't even know they're Malachim, first of all. Um, but what we learn here, and this is the source, is an implication that Malachim were commonplace in Abraham's house. But how do we know that? Where, what's the basis for Rashi's interpretation for the words, the obscure words, Achare Ro'i, means I saw them in Abraham's house? Here comes the answer to that. Vateda, you should know, you, the reader, Shahaita Ragila Lirotam, that she was accustomed to seeing them. Shahare, Manoach, back to him, Manoach Ra'a et Amalach Pamachat, Manoach, in the story of the birth of Shimshon, saw the Malach once, the Amar, and he said, Mot Namut, we will surely die. Vazu Ra'ata Arba Ze Acher Ze. And this one, Ai Hagar, saw four, one after another, and didn't tremble. So it, that links, as I promised, to Rashi on Pasuk Tet, who said there that each time it says Malach four times, that refers to a different Malach. So Rashi, I think perhaps was there setting us up for this Pasuk here, that the fact that she sees Malach after Malach and doesn't tremble at all shows that she was accustomed to seeing Malachim. Because we know from Manoach that if you're not accustomed to seeing Malachim and you see one, you get really, really scared. And yet she didn't. Yes? No, no, I'll just Okay. <laughs> and one more thing. Why would she expect to see Malachim in Abraham's house? Because Abraham's worthy of seeing Malachim. And that itself exaggerates her surprise that she sees Malachim in the desert. So why does she see Malachim in the desert? Because, Ata Kel Ra'i, you are the God who sees. And what did he see, according to Rashi, according to her? Her affliction. Her affliction, the insult to the insulted. So because she expects to see Malachim in Abraham's house and doesn't expect to see Malachim elsewhere, elsewhere, that emphasizes to her how Hashem does see. He sees her affliction out in the desert. So what I'm trying to say is Rashi's early comment at the beginning fits beautifully with the Rashi's comment at the end. The very fact that she sees Malachim in Avraham's house is why she, and she expects to do that, is why she's surprised to see them in the desert. And that's why she says, this is a very powerful phrase that Rashi puts into her mouth, that he sees the insult of the insulted. So, um, 
That was actually not bring the later case when Hagalds when Ishmael sent out and then the, the tree came. What are the, the there's a there's a when Ishmael got sent out and then he was about to die and then Malachi got sent down. Right, because that hasn't happened yet. I'm saying well she didn't die then. Surely when 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 the angel came down and Hagal saw this, according to the passage of um before we quoted saying that um, you surely die if you're not accustomed to it, you would die. And in that case, she also never died over there. I'm saying, could, not, could Rashi not bring that further case as well? Or would just basically... No, that wouldn't prove it. Um, 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 hold on, because so, right, later on, Hagar sees a Malach and doesn't express surprise. Not that she doesn't die. It's she doesn't... You know, Malach didn't die, but he feared that he was going to. That's the point. Yes. Um, so what would that prove? That would only show... that You might learn from that that Hagar is just the sort of person who regularly, who's not afraid to meet angels. We have to have a, a, a control of somebody else who is afraid to meet angels. Right, okay. okay? Yeah. If I'm understood your question. Can you argue, can you argue that in, in I think it was um, with Manoach and Hagar, it's completely different statuses? Like, how can we even compare? Okay, like, so, Abraham's yeah. So, I, 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 uh, well, she's out of Abraham's household at the moment. But yeah, but, but okay. as, in, as in she's seen angels in Abraham's household, that's when she's accustomed to seeing angels. Yeah. So, like, she, obviously she was... No, but that's the answer. Her. That's the answer. Otherwise, we would have assumed they were similar. So we have the oh, question, right. why doesn't she get scared? And the answer is because she sees in Abraham's household. I thought you were going to ask a different question. I, I use the word control, and I think it's probably the right word. But of course, you know, any scientist can point out a hundred differences between the Bernard case and the Hagar case, which make one not a control for the other. To which I would say, Rashi is saying that they are similar enough to draw the inference from one to the other. So, having named Hashem, speaking to her there, Pasuk Yudalad says, Therefore, she called the well, the well of Lachai Ra'i. I'll leave that untranslated for a moment. ben Kadesh Behold, it is between Kadesh and it's between Baret. So this well gets named. Incidentally, this well comes back into the story of Abraham and his descendants at a later time. Um, probably a few years time, we will get there at the end of Parsha Chaye Sarah. Okay, says Rashi, what does Be'er Lachai Ro'i mean? Ketar Gumo, which means, I'm not gonna do all the work for you, look in Unculus, and Unculus has got it done. So if you now look at Unculus, he says on the words, Al-Kain Kara, Al-Kain Kara, same word, Lebera, he therefore he called the well Bera de Malach Kayama, the well of the living Malach, it Hazi Allah was seen by it. Now, so that is Lachai Ra'i. So Chai Ra'i is living, Ra'i is seen. Um, and so Tarashi is telling us that Unkelos is explaining what's the Chai, what's the living. The answer is the Malach Kayama, the living Malach. And what's Ra'i? It Chazi Allah was seen on it. Now, the Mizrahi points out that the Unkelos is really sort of not translated a letter, the letter Yud of the word Ra'i. Because what it really should say is the well in, in the Hebrew, Be'er Lachai Ra'i, the well where something living was seen by me, 
Ra'i, and Unculus doesn't translate that. Unculus says the well where the living Malach was seen, it chazi, not seen by me. Now, <clears throat> Mizrahi says, Lashitato, uh, as is his style, that he missed it out. I mean, I, I'm sort of exaggerating it, but basically that's what Mizrahi says. He missed it out, so he didn't translate the Yud. Move on. The Maharal says there's a reason he didn't translate the Yud. Because there's one word in that passage that doesn't fit. There's one word that's wrong. Grammatically. There aren't many words in the Pasuk, so which one do you think it is? Okay, it's the word kara. Yeah? yeah. So why didn't you say it? <laughs> What's wrong with it? It should be kara. Or tikra. It should be she called, but it's he called. So the maral says that Rashi pointing us to the Unculus and the Unculus not translating the Ra'i as see me is saying that it wasn't so the subject of this verb, the subject of this verse is not Hagar. It's he called, it's people called, it's some general people called the well Be'er Lachai Ra'i. And if it's people, not Hagar naming the well, then it's not the Malach who appeared to me. It's the Malach who appeared. Now you might still say, well, why is the Yud there? So I'm not entirely sure of that. But what the Maharal is saying is the word kara means it's not the Malach who appeared to me. It means the Malach who appeared because it's not Hagar talking. And the Unculus has spotted that and Rashi has spotted that by referring you to the Unculus and Mizrahi hasn't spotted that. But that's what the Maharal says. So then what happens next? In Pasuk Tetvav, Bateled Hagar la Abraham ben. Hagar bore to Abraham a son. Vayikra Avram shem bano asher yalda hagar yishmael. And Avraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar had born, Yishmael. I don't know why it has to say again, whom Hagar had born. Rashi doesn't address that. So I just hope that as something interesting. So why, uh, um, what is interesting about what happened here? If you compare what happened in Tetvav, which what, with what was commanded in Yud Aleph, you'll notice something different. What was commanded in Yud Aleph and what happened in Tetvav? She will call him. She is commanded that she, she will call him Yishmael. And Abraham named his son. Fortunately, got the same name. Uh, how did that happen? Says Rashi, Vayikra Abraham Shem, etc. Afalpi Shalosh Shema Avram Vibre Hamalach. Even though Abraham did not hear the words of the Malach, Sha'amar, when the Malach said, the Karata Shemo Yisrael, you, she, shall call his name Yishmael, sorry, the Karat, Sarata Ruach HaKodesh Alav, the Ruach HaKodesh rested on him, the Karao Yishmael, and he called him Yishmael. Which implies there wasn't a lot of conversation between Hagar and Abraham. Which is interesting. Say, but then the first one should be the dance. What's the point of having to say, she is to say, yeah, the Ruach HaKodesh came on Abraham's calling. Yud'alaf, the Pasuk Yud'alaf is useless. Well, they're not Yud'alaf the Pasuk, but you could argue that the instruction to Hagar is, is useless. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know. So maybe the instruction to Hagar is like a backup. That if the Yurach HaKodesh doesn't come to Abraham, Hagar will do the job of calling him Yishmael. Okay, I mean, I leave that as interesting. It's certainly interesting. Rashi doesn't give us the backstory. Rashi just said that, um, Rashi is answering the question, which I think uh, is the one that I raised. 
why is it Abraham calling him Yishmael? And how does Abraham know he's supposed to be called Yishmael? Two questions, really. So Rashi doesn't answer the first question. Why Abraham is doing the calling? Don't know. But why, how can Abraham call the name that the Malach told Agat to use? Answer, Rashi's answered that by saying it was Ruch HaKodesh. Interestingly, and again, I'm sorry, I'm saying this a few times tonight. I, I, I haven't got anywhere going with this. But it's interesting that Rashi rules out Hagar saying to Abraham, listen, mate, uh, I've got a message that we're going to call him Yishmael, okay? But Abraham sort of does that for himself. I'm reminded of the story of a friend of mine who had a baby daughter with his wife. Uh, well, she had the baby daughter, actually. And then he went to Shul to name her, and he came back, and I kid you not, he said, you know that name we decided upon? Well, I chose a different one. <laughs> well, it wasn't hugely different. He added an extra letter because he preferred Gematria, but it was still a different <laughs> Okay, so Hagar uh, has the name, and fortunately, Abraham, through Kodesh, has the same name. Then, in Pasuk Tet Zion, for Avram ben Shmonim Shana, Shanim, Beledet Hagar et Yishmael la Avram. Avram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Yishmael to Avram. Why do we need to be told that? Uh, just to make things interesting, um, if you look at um, sorry, Perak Yudzayan Posikaf Hey. It says there when it talks about the Brit Mila, which is almost the next story. So Abraham was given the command of Brit Mila when he was 99 years old. For Yishmael Bano ben Shalosh Esrei Shana. And Yishmael was 13 when for him et Basar Arlato, when he was circumcised. So Abraham was 99. We're told that, Pasuk Kaftalan, sorry. But Abraham ben Tisham, ben Tisham Shana, for him Basar Arlato. So Abraham was 99. Yishmael at that time was 13. So how old was Abraham when Yishmael was born? 86. Now, let's have a look at Pasuk Tet Zion. But Abraham ben Shmonim Shana v'sheish shanim beledet Hagar et Yishmael Abraham. Abraham was 86 when Yishmael was born. Says Rashi, but Abraham ben Shmonim Begome, l'shivcho shel Yishmael nichtam. As a praise of Yishmael, this is written. So Rashi's question is not, well, Maybe it is why there seems to be a repetition. At the moment, let's, let's look at Rashi's question just on this passage here. Why do we need to know Abraham's age when Ishmael was born? And there are certain biogra biographical information that the Torah gives us, and there's lots of biographical information, but the Torah doesn't give us. So why does it have to tell us that Abraham was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael? So Rashi answers that question by saying, It was written, as praise of Yishmael. Lahodia Shahaya ben Shaloshes Reishana Kashinimol below Ikev. To tell us that he was 13 when he was circumcised and he didn't object. Literally, he didn't stop the process. And that's praiseworthy because obviously <coughs> to be circumcised when you're 13 um, is not an easy matter. Uh, he didn't have the mitzvah from Hashem in the way that Abraham did. He was only circumcised because Abraham said, listen, we've got to, everyone's got to be circumcised. And he did, and he didn't protest, and he didn't 
stop the process. And that's just my, and that's the praise of Yishmael. And that's why we need this Pasuk here to say that Abram was 86. So we work out that Yishmael must have been 13 when he was circumcised. So the obvious question that I've alerted you to is we don't need this Pasuk to tell us that Yitzhak, sorry, that Yishmael was 13. Because we've got a Pasuk that tells us explicitly that Yishmael was 13. So various answers are given to this. Everyone seems to ask this question on this Rashi. And basically, the, the answer seems to be that if we just had one Pasuk saying he was 13, then we might have assumed could be that he did object and Avram had to force him to do it. Or it could be that before he was 13, um, Abraham tried but couldn't complete the process and he completed the process when he was 13. And it's not that this verse explicitly rules out those options. It's the fact of the repetition. The fact that it said here, Abraham was 86, which is precisely equivalent to saying that when Abraham was 99, Ishmael was 13. And then we're told when Abraham was 99, Ishmael was 13. It's the repetition. It's the repetition that tells us that when Abraham gave the Brit Milah to Yishmael, it was the first time and it was the only time and he didn't protest. And that's what Rashi says here. Okay. Want to ask? Okay. That was good. Yeah. Okay. That concludes the story of Hagar and Yishmael part one, because in the next parsha there's going to be Hagar and Yishmael part two. But this is Hagar and Yishmael part one, and the story is Hagar is back in Abraham's household with her son Yishmael. I just want to mention um, that, and this is not Rashi, this is something that a teacher of mine, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Pukko, told me, I have mentioned this before, but it, it's relevant now again, that we had the Brit Ben and we're about to have the Brit Mila. And what is it that distinguishes one brick from another? So uh, there's a lot of answers to that question. But one of the answers, and I have alluded to this, is that the Brit Benabatarim was for Abraham is as the ancestor of many different nations, Jewish and non-Jewish. That was why there were 10 lands given to Abraham at the Brit Benabatarim. And that included the lands which would go to Edom and Ammon and Moab. And then we discussed uh, and Rashi says, at one time in the future, they will come back to, they will come to us as well. But in the meantime, they go to Abraham's non-Jewish descendants. The Brit Mila is much more clearly for Abraham's Jewish descendants. Um, and that perhaps is the difference between the first Brit and the second Brit. And what comes in between? What comes in between is this story. And what does this story teach? That Hagar is not the same as Sarai. And therefore, Yishmael is not the same as Yitzchak. And as I, as I stress, and I think this is valid, I think this is really key to uh, what's going on, and, and Rashi doesn't disagree, that the, the whole process, the whole message of, of this parasha that we're just reading is that Hagar has to learn that she is a servant and that Sarah is her mistress. And the Malach says explicitly, return, um, sh- uh, return and behit ani tachat yadeha and be afflicted under her hand. That is the distinction between Abraham's Jewish descendants, who aren't yet born, and Abraham's non-Jewish descendants. And that, in a sense, leads into Pas Perak Yudzayan, which is the Brit Mila. Okay, so let's start Perak Yudzayan. <coughs> yes. This Brit Mila about to happen, I mean, Yitzhak's not even, uh, that the angels come next, I should have said mm-hmm. that, right? So this is the Brit Mila of Yishmael, though. Yes, but when we'll get there, you'll see is, is, well, it's not just, it's not and, just, and Abraham, Abraham, it's, right. not just right. it's not just Ishmael as well. 
Who else is there? And Abraham. Uh, who else? Household. The whole household. Okay, so that's why Ishmael's in a bit of a grey area. Okay, thank you. Okay, Vayhi Avraham ben Avram, sorry, ben Tishim Shana v'Tisha Shanim. Avram was ninety-nine years old. Vayera Hashem el Avram, and Hashem appeared to Avram. Vayoma elav, and he said to him, Ani kel Shakai. So Shakai, which I'm pronouncing that way because it's respectful, is one of the names of a Kaddish Baruch It's less often used, and that's why Rashi will tell us why it's used here. So Hashem says, Ani kel shakai, hithalech lefanai, walk before me, v'heye tamim, and be perfect, complete. So there's quite a few things to say. So Rashi, first of all, says, Ani shal kel shakai. Ani hu shiesh dai ve'el lokoti lechol bria. I am he who has sufficient of my godliness for all creation. Therefore, walk before me, which we're going to explain in a moment. And I will be to you as a god and as a patron. And F and similarly, every place in scripture, its explanation is thus, die shalom, enough for him. And everything is according to the context. Okay, so the basic idea is shakai is shadai, that there is enough. And says Rashi, wherever we see shakai, it's something to do with Hashem having enough. But what that actually means will vary from context to context. What it means here is Hashem has enough godliness for all creation. And therefore, if you hit Alech Lefanai, if you walk before me, I will be to you, as a God and as a patron. That's what Rashi says. Now let's try and understand this a bit more. <coughs> and I think, um, it, it, I, I, I think the only way to understand it is in the light of the Midrash that says that Avraham is worried about having a Brit Mila. And by the way, this links exactly to what I was saying before. Why is Avraham worried about having a Brit Mila? Says the, says the Midrash, because Avraham feels that people will distance themselves from him because he'll be different. The Brit Mila is a physical sign, and more than a sign, a physical manifestation that Jews are different. And Abraham feels that now I've made this mark on my own body and I am different, people will stop coming to see me. Passers-by will stop popping in for a chat. Um, I realize actually that the very next parasha is passers-by did pop in for a chat, but maybe that, maybe that actually is not a contradiction. Maybe that's part of Hashem's response to Abraham. Abraham, says the Midrash, is worried that he will no longer have people coming to talk to him. Okay. So Hashem says, don't worry, because I've got enough godliness that I'll be your God. I'll come and talk to you, and I'll be your patron. Now, what is a patron? So patron is a, is a Latin word from pato. Um, but we normally, we understand it in English as, you know, somebody who does business with you or somebody who supports you. Uh, just occurs to me, as I say, it's from Latin, that um, there is a much more precise meaning. And if you look in Perak Memhe Pasachet, Okay, Perik Memhe Pasachet. So we jump right to the story 
of um, Yosef. And Yosef, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says in Pasuk Chet, Mem Hei Chet, Va'ata lo atem shalachtem oti, Behold, you didn't send me, Heina, ki alokim, but Rabbi Hashem sent me here to Egypt. And it turned out all right, because v'yasimeni la'av la'faro. He made me a father to Paro. Look at Rashi there. La'av, la'chaver, as a friend, and the next word, ulapetron, which is Rashi's translation of the word in Hebrew, av. And it just occurs to me, that that's clearly the Latin origin of the word patron, which is related to pater and paternal and paternity. Patron actually originally means father. The way we use it in English is a different meaning. So um, Rashi there sheds light on Rashi here about the word patron. So Hashem will be to you. Hashem says to Abraham, I've got enough godliness. I'll be to you as a God and as a father. So a simple <coughs> meaning based on what I'm saying is that Hashem reassures Abraham, you won't have people to talk to, but don't worry, I'll talk to you. I'll be your friend, I'll be your father, I'll be your God. But we can go further. Why was Abraham worried about lack of people to talk to? Was he going to be lonely? Why is Abraham very keen on people to talk to? He thinks that's his role. His role to do what? To bring God. To bring God into this world by talking to other people about God. So Hashem is saying, uh, and this is taking it one stage further, but I think this is valid. Hashem is saying, you will still be able to fulfill that role, but in a different way. Because you, rather than speaking to people, rather than having a Kirov program, there's another way you can do Kirov. You can represent God in this world. And that's what Hashem is saying. I will be your God. And thereby, don't worry, because you'll still fulfill the same objective. You will, I was going to say embody, that's not right. But you will represent by your very act, act of having a brick mila, and by extension, the way you live your life, you will be the representative of God. That's, if you like, the other type of kirup. In fact, you can make a whole drosh about this. There's one type of kirup where you go out to where the people are, and you make of them. And there's another type of kirup where you serve as a dogma, and you don't necessarily interact. And I'm not saying one type of Kira is better than the other. And I think what you're seeing here is the transition from type A to type B. Yes? I have a bit of a silly pragmatic question, but what, what was the source of his apprehension? Like, why would any passers-by be aware of I, I, I am aware of that question, and I don't know. Um, maybe, I mean, I'm just sort of guessing. Maybe word would get round, okay? And that he has cut part of his body off, and more than that, he's made himself circumcised as opposed to uncircumcised, and that's a different type of person. Yeah. So maybe. Okay. Now, Now, what does it mean, walk before me? Now, there's an obvious problem with this, because there's, a, there's an anthropomorphism. How can you walk before God? God has no physical presence. So how can you be walking in front of him? Um, we know, actually, that Hashem, that... Um, uh, Hashem says, sorry, Abraham says to his servant, and Rashi identifies Eliezer, that I walk before God. Um, and so he does, he talks back, if you like, about the fulfillment of this instruction. But anyway, how does he fulfill this instruction? Says Rashi, like the Targum says, 
And if you look at the Targum, um, it says, What is Palach in Aramaic? Avoda. Serve me. Do the Avoda before me. And then Rashi says, What's Hadbeik? Cleave, stick to my service. Now, Rashi is doing something very, very clever here. He's bringing two ideas. The Targum only has one, but Rashi is adding something else. You see, he says, palach kadamai. And then he says, hadbeik ba'avodoti. Hadbeik ba'avodoti is not the Hebrew translation of the Aramaic palach kadamai. The Aramaic palach kadamai means, do the avoda before me. And then Rashi says, stick to my avoda, cleave to my avoda. And I think, or what I've learned, is that Rashi is saying two things. Okay, the basic idea, as the Targum says, it's do the avoda, but it's not enough to do the avoda. There's people, and we all know them, and perhaps we recognize ourselves, I recognize myself, as people who, you get up in the morning, you go to shawl, but that doesn't really always have a huge change on your personality. It's what you do, you do the avoda. Avraham is being told to do more than that, to stick, to cleave to the Avodah, to glue himself to the Avodah, Debek, that the Avodah and he become intrinsically connected, that they are, unlike the uh, scenario I just outlined, that they really, the Avodah really, really, really has an impact on the personality, and you can't disassociate the person from the Avodah. The person is an Avodah person, rather than somebody who goes to shore for half an hour in the morning. And where does Rashi get that idea from? So this is actually my idea. I would suggest Rashi gets that from the word hitalech. That that's when you hitalech lefanai, you're constantly going before me. Your whole action, your movement at all times is before me. That's not just somebody who does the avoda. That's somebody who cleaves to the avoda. And after all, here's the pearl here. What is the word for Jewish law, which is a better way or better the the way Jewish people should go, halacha. Halacha is not just Jewish law. Halacha is going. Halacha is the way we should live our lives. Halacha is what determines our lives. Halacha is the way that we cleave to the Avodah. So hit lefanai, says the Targum, it's about doing the Avodah. And when I say Avodah, I haven't translated. So it could mean Avodah in the Bet Mikdash, which is the, you know, the epitome of how we serve Hashem. Abraham didn't have a Bet Mikdash. We don't have a Bet Mikdash. So I think it means by extension, all the things that we do as an obligation to Hashem. Perhaps in the middle, there's Avodah Shavalei, which is prayer, which is our equivalent to what goes on in the Bet Mikdash. But I think it must be bigger than that because it's talking about Abraham's entire existence. So Rashi says, it's something to do with the Avodah. We get that from the Targum. But I add, I, Rashi, add, stick to my avodah, cleave to my avodah, make it become part of you. And I think that's from Hitalech. That's what it means to go in the avodah. Yes? I don't know if you could, I don't know if it's so shy to Abraham. But I'm saying, could you say that's also maybe one of the reasons why he was a bit nervous to get the, the grits? It's because of so, this aspect of doing it means that you have to be so connected to it. He thought maybe there's an aspect which he might be able to, but I don't think... It, Maybe it's a little bit. I mean, we normally assume that Avram was pretty yeah, much on that level that's, already. That's yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and let's just finish 
with the next bit of Rashi. Uh, no, no, we have, we're not going to finish the next one, Rashi, because Rashi on the Hayet Amim. Um, okay, we can just do the first line of Rashi on the Hayet Amim. So Rashi says, Af zeh tzivui acha tzivui. This is also a command after a command. What does Rashi mean? It means there's two commands. The first is, Hitalech lefanai, and the second one is, Vehaye tamim. That's a separate tzivui. As opposed to, what else could you read it as? A consequence. You could read it as, walk before me, and as a consequence, you will be um, tamim, in which case you should be tihye, not heye. So the grammar supports Rashi, and that's why Rashi says what Rashi says. Heye is an imperative. So number one, hitalech lefanai, and number two, heye tamim, be perfect. And in Hashem, next week, um, we will see Rashi's explanation, explanations of exactly what that tamimut, that perfection, means. Any comments? Yes. I'm just wondering, and I think we would have addressed this last year when we were learning it off, but how would you compare that or contrast the hitalech and tamim by Noah? It doesn't seem to be explained in the same way. Um, that's a very good question. Can you give me a week to think about it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yes. Noah was We're about to see three explanations of Tamim with Rashi and uh, with Abraham, and they don't really match up. So I will think about that and see if we can answer that. And they're both descriptive, I think. Yes, they are. Yes. And Noah also hitalech elokim et Noah. Yes. Uh, whereas Abraham went before, yeah. um, and we don't say, we don't, Rashi doesn't say that about uh, Noah there. So, I mean, it, it, my starting point to answer your question seems to be that Rashi reads them differently by Noah as he does by Abraham, both the phrases, Tamim and Hitalech. But that doesn't answer the question because on what basis does he read them differently? Right. Okay. I'm wondering if you think it's more contextual um, it, based it, on the characters or the, because the. Yeah, I mean, it must be contextual for Rashi to read it differently. Uh, it also matches to the different personalities. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not answering the question. So I'm expounding the question. It also matches the different personalities of Abraham and Noah, but that can't be good enough. There must be a textual reason why Rashi doesn't go in the same direction. I think we could tell you about that case. It's here, but it's, it's a which is not, not the panai, so yeah, no, that's true. That's for sure. That's for sure. And Rashi does talk about yeah, the difference Rashi between going with Hashem because he needs Hashem to support him and going in front of. But still, we would expect the hitalech itself to be similar. And as far as I can see, they're not. So we need to do some homework on that. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We will stop recording.